Welcome, everyone, to the MBIT Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Medan. And today, Simon Grunfield makes his third appearance on the podcast discussing the recent crypto crash, the Coinbase bankruptcy scare, which applies to a lot of other crypto exchanges, and how TerraUSD and Luna crashed. Quick disclaimer, the podcast is not a recommendation to buy or sell any crypto. All investments are risky, and the podcast is also not a research report. It should not be used as the basis of any investment decision. So for a little bit of quick background, uh, the crypto crash was kickstarted by the crash of the TerraUSD and LunaCoin, of which TerraUSD is a stablecoin or was a stablecoin. So stablecoins are cryptocurrencies that are supposed to remain, uh, quote unquote, stable in price as they are pegged to a fiat currency or an ETF. So what are some advantages of using stablecoins over cash or crypto like Bitcoin? The, you know, the theory behind a stable coin is, as you said, something that's it's pegged already to some sort of uh, central bank currency. So it's pegged to the dollar, it's pegged to the euro, it's pegged to the pound. And it makes total sense that you would have some sort of digital asset that's pegged to a fiat currency like that. Because the reality is, is that transacting in crypto is just far easier and way cheaper than doing it with fiat. So, you know, you could be anywhere in the world and use your stable coins uh, to conduct commerce. And the beauty of, again, crypto is that it's borderless. You can transact anywhere, doesn't matter what kind of bank they have, they just need a wallet. So <clears throat> fundamentally, we can understand like where the value there is. Uh, and again, to your point is that uh, stable coins are meant to be pegged to something. So how do you do that? Well, in the case of, uh, let's say Circle, USDC, what they do is very simple. You give them a dollar, they give you a dollar worth of USDC or one USDC, and then they hold that fiat in reserve. You know, they're collecting interest on it. They're also charging different transaction fees. So Circle is effectively acting as a bank, issuing its own note, if you think about it. And this is also something that the uh, executive branch of the government has also identified. And therefore, they're kind of classifying or they're hinting that when the new regs come out, either later this year or next year, that stablecoin issuers will be deemed as banks and they may have to be regulated as such, which wouldn't be a bad thing, but it would be a very, it would be an extreme approach to regulating something that's fairly easy to regulate. But anyway, that's, a, that's, that's how government approaches problems, right? They just throw uh, more, uh, more red tape around it. So, okay, very simple model. You hold reserves and you're issuing tokens. Now that's fine and dandy if you're able to actually collect those reserves. Alternatively, you have a few of these tokens like what UST and Luna was doing where you have an algorithm. And this is where things go a little haywire because when you're dealing with mathematics to try to match rates on the surface, and in theory, it sounds all fine and dandy, but it is subject again, to market conditions. The dollar can go any way against the pound, against the euro, against the CAD, Aussie dollar, Kiwi, et cetera. When you're holding a dollar, you're still holding that one dollar. If you're trying to build a digital asset that's pegged to currencies using an algorithmic secret sauce, you're basically exposing yourself, your system, the, the entire economy to a level of risk that is outside of your control. And without going into too much detail, that's exactly kind of like what happened here. 
Now, the catalyst to this whole mess, how did that occur? That's, I think, the real important question. There are a lot of rumors circulating around multifaceted arbitrage play that was done in conjunction of BlackRock and Citadel, and somehow they did. I don't know if that's really the case. I don't have direct evidence. I don't know anybody at Citadel or BlackRock that would confirm or deny these kind of allegations. I know that there's been some discussions around it, but at a high level, could you know enterprises of that kind of magnitude affect these markets? Absolutely. Could a ill-willed arbitrage trade, the way that it was described that some of these institutions engaged in, could that have caused this entire crash? 100%. And I haven't seen any kind of report or any kind of suit coming out of this that would paint a clear picture on that. But plausible. And according to the Wall Street Journal, Doquan's company, which is the one who created TerraUSD and LunaCoin, was Terraform Labs, which raised more than $200 million from Lightspeed Ventures and Galaxy Digital to fund those crypto projects. Luna's total value ballooned to more than $40 billion. And then as previously mentioned, it is backed by an algorithm for uh, Terra, unlike other stable coins that are backed by a real currency. But why was Luna and Terra able to have such a large value for some time? And then what caused it to crash? Well, so first off, the question on the value, I think, is timing. So why is it timing? Because, you know, in an up market, you know, you don't really have to be a, a rocket scientist to, 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 to kind of like ride that wave. Everybody's a genius during a, during a bull run. So it's really about timing. You know, when, when they were able to launch the connections that they have, you mentioned Galaxy, you mentioned a few others, like these are big names, man, right? So these are big names that are, aren't just going to write a check and just, you know, sit back. They're going to write a check and they're going to make sure to do their job strategically to make sure that that asset that they just invested in gains as much value as possible. So it's a multifaceted approach, right? It's not just one clear answer. Again, when it comes to the timing uh, and launching properly, uh, making sure that you have the right marketing around it and the right infrastructure to support that. It's just, it's a combination of all the above. And then we've seen crash in cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin recently. So what does that indicate for the crypto market as a whole? Well, first off, you know, remember what goes up has got to come down. So, you know, there was a bull market in crypto for quite some time. And all right, yeah, people are taking profits. USD Luna was a catalyst to this whole mess. But it's also indicative of what's going on in the greater financial markets and the equities markets. You look at what's going on right now. You look at the S&P 500, the Dow, everything is in a bear market. And you can even say that due to what's going on in the equities market, when when stocks fall, the dollar gets stronger. And if the dollar is getting stronger, everything pegged to the dollar is going to get weaker. So anything pegged to Bitcoin, okay, it's going to get weaker. Ethereum, all of these currencies are, are pretty much correlated and the, the major instruments are all paired against the dollar. So it would be reasonable to assume that if the other half of the, the trade is getting stronger, the other half is going to get weaker. So there's a lot of correlation what's going on with the equity, equities markets, the global financial markets as a whole. And right now, yeah, we're in a bear territory. That being said, I've been slowly starting to increase my portfolio uh, on the crypto side. Because if you just look across the board, Bitcoin is down about 50% of where it was a year ago or a little over a year ago. That's a great buy opportunity. You've got tokens like Algorand, like Solana, like uh, uh, Avalanche. They're, they've, they're all like massively undervalued compared to where they were a year ago. And these are not fly-by-night organizations. These are companies with solid teams, solid offerings, 
they're here for the long run. Okay. So it's a long play with those guys. So this is a fantastic buying opportunity that three, four years from now, people will be looking back and be like, shit, I should have bought Bitcoin at 30K. You know, it makes complete sense. Or I should have bought Ethereum at 2K. So I'm not, I'm not really too concerned about that stuff. Again, it's part of a healthy economic life cycle. Again, it's a nice cyclical. What goes up has got to come down and, and vice versa. Right. And with assets such as investing in stocks, it's tied to a physical company and there are financials behind it. When investing in cryptocurrency, how can you tell when the price is low versus too high? You have to do an analysis based on uh, similar but very different factors. So, for example, okay, let's look at Ethereum and let's look at Polygon. At the surface, they both do the exact same thing, except one of them does it way, 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 way better. In fact, right now, Polygon does the same job Ethereum does, but does it in a very large magnitude better than Ethereum does it. Does it for cheaper? Does it faster? But yet, you look at the tokens and you say, well, look at the value. Ethereum is trading at 2K today and, and Matic is below a dollar. How do you explain that? You would assume that if they're providing the exact same service, they should be valued at the same level. Well, here's where the little secret sauce comes in, which is like the fundamentals. It's not just the technicals anymore, but fundamentally, Ethereum's is Ethereum is still branded as the platinum standard when it comes to at least the NFT marketplace and decentralized applications. It's trusted still more. It has a wider network. And as I said, it's the sterling silver standard. Why? Well, look at the NFT marketplace. You'll see that if you go onto OpenSea, Rarible, anywhere that they support both Ethereum and Polygon, you'll notice that the cheaper NFTs are all done on Polygon and the way, way, way more expensive ones are all done on Ethereum. So there's a fundamental, it's not just technicals at this point, there's not a fundamental reason why one would be valued higher. Then you can go in, into it even further and be like, well, Ethereum has an open market cap there is no limit to how many Ethereum tokens are going to be minted. Whereas with Matic, there is a, a cap. So how does that play into the mix? It's a little bit of a different analysis. Okay, it's not just doing your SWOT and pestle analysis around an organization and trying to understand exactly what kind of offerings they have and value proposition that they provide, but it's, it's a little bit more. And this is what makes this market really, really interesting is how these different protocols find themselves around the, 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 the entire, you know, ecosphere of crypto and, and exactly the, the value that they bring individually, not just from a technology perspective, but fu fundamentally as well. And you mentioned NFTs. In the NFT space, we've seen a big crash recently with a lot of digital art along with crypto. Do you think this is the beginning of the dot-com era for Web3 or do you think there'll be a quicker V-shaped recovery? I think that it was the newest, shiniest toy on the block when it first started two years ago with NFTs. Everybody got really, you know, kind of like lost their shit about it. They're like, oh my God, this is like the whole new thing, right? You had the whole tool. People compare it to the whole tulip. Uh, right, tulip mania. Uh, yeah. Tulip mania, right. Well, again, what was this fundamentally based on? It was fundamentally based on artwork and pop culture. And, uh, you know, ultimately now it's getting into, it's already there, sports and entertainment and fan engagement. And you have utility coming out of it. But in the beginning, it was all about just the artwork and uh, copyright or presumed copyrights around artwork. Look what happened with Seth Green. Okay, so the comedian Seth Green owned a few bored apes and somehow he got fished and he lost them all. So now by virtue of not owning that token in his wallet, he now does not have the rights, the copyrights 
to that artwork. It's very much like a bearer bond. If I'm holding it, I have the rights. If I then decide to hand it to you, now you have the rights. It's a, it's still shaky ground. So things like that, when those things kind of happen, it does move the needle as far as like, wait a minute, do I really have the value that I think I have? If this was just a paper contract that Seth had with the creators of Board Ape, then this would never happen. But because it's all decentralized in Web3, it did happen. So there's massive risks. So you ask yourself, well, why the hell should I even do this on blockchain? Why don't I just pay for it properly? The truth is it doesn't hurt to do both. Um, one of the things that Simba is doing is we're launching an application combined with the token economy. And this, this platform is kind of like the lifelock for NFTs. It's going to be a combination of lifelock and yellow pages so that people like Seth Green, so people who own NFTs, and they may have spent two, $300, they may have spent a million dollars on this NFT. It doesn't matter, but um, they're able to do backups. They're able to create additional enhanced use cases for their the provenance and the history that comes with those NFTs and create additional metadata that they normally wouldn't be able to do it. And it's all separated from whatever platform they're using. So they can move that NFT wallet to wallet, platform to platform. And by doing so, they don't lose any of the information that they backed up, any of the information that they've uploaded on chain that will be available, accessible to everybody to view. If Seth had access to our application, anybody looking at that NFT that is now stolen in someone else's wallet, they'll be able to see, hey, this belonged to Seth Green, et cetera, et cetera. The only, today, the only uh, repercussion that these, uh, uh, whoever the person is that, that stole it, is experiencing is that they're blacklisted from OpenSea. That's it. That's the limitation. Now, I don't know if that's a limitation on OpenSea's platform. I don't know if that's just something that you know they took an initiative around, but when ours goes live, every exchange out there can reference that and be like, okay, here's the information about you know this fraud situation, this step situation. We can go ahead and take the appropriate steps to also make sure that that won't be traded here as well. So it acts as a central to some degree, a centralized repo for all this. Well, it's not it's a decentralized repo for all this information that anyone on the planet will be able to access and sort through and see the history and see all the information that comes with all this stuff. If you're a gamer, you own an NFT that was used in a certain game, that won a certain battle, that was used in a certain tournament, all of that you can actually store on MDR and it just adds more value to the underlying non-fungible token. Speaking of, the market has arguably failed to regulate itself recently. Should regulators step into regulating assets like NFTs and cryptocurrencies, or do you think it, they should work it out on its own? And if so, how would they do that? I don't know about NFTs just yet. I don't know about how you would regulate NFTs the way you would regulate, let's say, crypto. Um, I'll say this. I'll say this. If, if a, a company is taking money from customers acting as a custodian for those customers, then that company has to comply with some sort of regulatory framework. It has to. I'm holding your funds. If I'm holding your, your money on your behalf for you to do stuff on my platform, then somebody should be watching me. You know, you need to feel like somebody is providing some sort of oversight. Otherwise, you're just basically throwing money at Simon and saying, okay, I trust Simon because it sounds like a good guy. And you don't think I'm just going to pack up and run away one day. All right. Reference Quadriga. I mean, well, we can reference a whole lot of companies too. <laughs> that was the first one that came to mind. Now, as far as the NFT market, if you're just keeping everything crypto, just crypto, where there's no fiat involvement, I don't know. The jury's still out. I don't know how you would regulate that. That being said, 
NFT marketplaces are now slowly adopting fiat payments. But then again, they're using third parties that are regulated to some degree that either have their money transmission licenses either here or overseas. If they're overseas, they have, you know, an, the equivalent of an MTL. Um, and of course they have to work with banks and the banks won't open up accounts for companies that they deemed high risk. So there is a little bit of a self-regulated organization feel within the NFT space, those that are going into fiat, but those that are just staying in crypto, yeah, there's, there's no oversight whatsoever. And I don't know exactly how to resolve that issue right now. It's kind of like buyer beware. And in regards to the oversight for crypto, how could government regulators regulate it effectively? Well, they have to kind of treat it the same way that they would treat any kind of commodity, not security per se, but a commodity. That's number one. So let's look at Coinbase, for example. And I think this is a great segue into discussing Coinbase and all the, all, all the things that they've been talking about recently. Yeah. So Coinbase has a number of different options when it comes to providing oversight, meaning they have a, a number of different options of actually providing the service that they're providing right now while complying with different mandates. They have money transmission licenses in all 50 states here in the U.S. so that they can offer crypto to all 50 states, including states like New York and California, which is extremely hard. Specifically, New York has the bit license. It's like your regular MTL times 10. And that was done on purpose, by the way. We're not going to talk about it right now, but it was done on purpose. So they have that. They also have access to broker dealers. So if they wanted to just get institutional access, signing up institutions and working with those institutions outside of the regular MTL business, if they just wanted to have a desk dedicated to managing risk from institutions, they can do that through their BD. What none of these guys have, because it's not mandated yet, or it's not, it hasn't been written out yet, none of them have any kind of federal license. None of them have any kind of license that makes them a recognized exchange. You can do that. It's extremely expensive. There's nothing that makes them go down that route. And by licensed exchange, I'm talking about like how the NASDAQ or American Stock Exchange or ICE, or, you know, there's, there's a few smaller guys out there too, but there's not a lot of them, right? Because these are legitimate stock exchanges, but there's there's a way of, of going about doing that. There's also something that they could get, which is called an uh, ATS, Alternative Trading System. That has to be combined also with a broker-dealer license as well. Okay. So there's so many ways of going about doing it. It really comes down to what is the best, most effective way to deploy our offering to our users using the least amount of work from a regulatory perspective. That's it. So it's up to them to decide which avenue to pursue. Now, uh, they recently made news because they made an announcement or Armstrong made the announcement saying, yeah, if Coinbase, you know, if it folds, you right. guys might lose all your money. So you say, well, wait a minute. I know if a bank folds, I'm protected. Well, again, these guys are not banks. That's number one. But number two, why? Why, if Coinbase falls, why would I lose even a penny of whatever funds I have there? A couple of things, a couple of reasons. Why. Companies like Coinbase and for the most part, broker dealers, because that's sort of like the model that they're using. They're using like sort of like a broker or prime broker model. Uh, they don't use a third party custodian to custody your funds. They custody your funds. The rationale behind why they would custody your funds and they use a third party is to provide you with better execution and better liquidity, which is true to some degree. They can manage risk better by commingling everyone's funds and not keeping accounts segregated. 
by commingling funds, it's much easier to transact. It's much easier for them on their books to say, these two guys bought and sold, bought and sold. All of the transactions are commissions that they're booking without really conducting any kind of transactions. If you think about it, it's now a centralized ledger. Your $10 goes in, my $10 goes in, and then you and I transact. There's really no movement other than ledger entries. It's only when you do a withdrawal or I do a withdrawal when there's a real transaction that occurs, okay, or a real settlement that occurs. So they use a centralized way of providing enhanced liquidity, probably better pricing to some degree, and just overall a better experience for the trader. You could look at Uniswap or SushiSwap or any of those guys and say, well, if they fall, nothing happens to my funds, which is true. They're not commingling anything. They're not centralizing the funds. They're not, they're not acting as a custodian. But the trade-off there is your speed of execution and your pricing. You're probably not going to get the same kind of pricing and the same kind of speed of execution with a centralized model versus a decentralized model. So as a centralized model, those funds are technically under their control, belongs to them. If they fault, if they all of a sudden get to a point where we have no more liquidity in our own company, they might tap customer liquidity to keep the operation going. It's within their right to do so. I'm not going to get into all that stuff, but until there are new regs that come out, it's well within their right to do so to make sure that you still have the opportunity to buy and sell crypto. Because remember, this isn't a privilege. This isn't written in the constitution that you need to have access to cryptocurrencies. It's a choice you made. You made a choice to go ahead and try to buy crypto through this organization, which is set up in, in, in this kind of format. So yeah, if they fault, most likely we'll be taking some of your funds with them. I know that they claim to have insurance, but that's on the wallets. Like if their wallets get hacked, if they experience some sort of disaster recovery situation, then you know they, they're covered from that degree. But if they fault because of just poor operational management, because of just businesses just failing, then there's there's really nothing that uh, that would protect you. They're not a bank, so there's no FDIC. Yeah, you're pretty much on your own. So again, kind of buyer beware. You mentioned if a bank goes bankrupt, it's insured up to $250,000. And if a brokerage goes bankrupt, the FDIC can protect up to five hundred grand. But crypto isn't protected at all, as you mentioned. What are some of the ways that the government can step in to insure it? You know, that's 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 a tricky question. I don't know. I never thought about that, really. Uh, like, how would how would government accept? Well, so first off, you know, the government has to, the, the administration has to have really, really solid, simple guidelines to require crypto companies to follow. It just has to be very simple and very clear. Okay, 10, 12 guidelines, 13, whatever it is, this is how you're going to operate your crypto business. The same way as if you were operating a, a stock exchange or an alternative trading system, an ATS license. This is how you're supposed to do it. As far as protecting user assets, the government doesn't custody crypto today. So there isn't really anything for them to ensure. They, you know, they don't recognize this stuff. Now, that being said, if there is a digital dollar that comes out from the Fed, now you have an opportunity to think about it a little bit more expanded and say, okay, well, now I can get this digital dollar that is backed up by the Fed. And maybe that could be insured that, and you could technically do that. Okay. Which means that now if I'm using that as a deposit at Coinbase and for whatever reason, Armstrong gets abducted by aliens or something like that, who knows what, all of a sudden the company just, they, they call it a day. 
um, hey, that's fine because uh, my funds are registered with the federal government and there you go, here's, here's, <laughs> here's the paper trail. Um, that might be it. You know, a central bank digital currency might be, might be the solution, but I guess to be determined, it, you know, we're going to need people a lot smarter than me to figure that out. And uh, to wrap it up here with uh, the crypto crash and the possible recession in the next couple of months, what can we expect for the long-term future of crypto? Same trajectory. I mean, there'll be new participants coming in, new new applications, new utility, new use cases for faster protocols, shinier protocols. I think it's going to be a, uh, an interesting interesting approach to, because uh, I think NFTs is also like the non-fungible token space is, is empowering new use cases outside of art and entertainment, outside of pop culture, outside of the, the crypto punks, which is just a brand lifestyle brand, right? Outside of all that, there are, there are new use cases for utility. There are things like that we're engaged in when it comes to supply chain management with coffee companies or with uh, airplane manufacturers. Or if it comes to like a state DMV looking to put car titles on chain through NFTs, we're involved in all these kind of things. Taking a few steps forward, carbon credit marketplace as well, which carbon credits is, is a massive, massive opportunity, which is lacking a lot of transparency and accountability. Well, NFTs can help solve all that stuff. And there are a few initiatives at the moment. That's exactly what they're doing. So I think that the non-fungible token space is also starting to find itself, again, outside of collectibles and trading cards and then we're going to find more utility like we're providing we are providing an open source application in order to preserve value in nfts generally just the general preservation of value and we're slapping a token around that so that there's a way to power that economy that 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 whole metric i expect that we're not going to be alone i expect other organizations and companies and i know if a bunch you know i'm going to be uh speaking at nft nyc week next month uh and I, going through the list of who's going to be there and what they're doing everything from hardware vendors to decentralized application providers marketplaces collector communities i mean it's just it's it's crazy how far and how expanded this entire market has become so i think that that'll act as a major boost to crypto. And then as the central banks start to formalize and normalize their approach to stable coins, I think that'll also provide a very solid foundation framework for the crypto market to continue to expand. Yeah, I completely agree. And as you mentioned, going back to Web2, we've seen very limited capabilities in the 1990s and only a decade plus later, were we able to see the real whole picture on what Web2 was capable of. I think we're going to see the same thing with Web3 and NFTs. There's limited capabilities now, like NFTs is mainly digital art, but I think we're going to really see that expand over the next decade or so. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And, um, you know, new advances in tech, new adv- new pop culture, new new direction in our social behavior. I mean, there's just so many things that we can't really predict just yet because it just hasn't happened. You know, we haven't seen the new trend in devices or phones or the new trend in, you know, what people are wearing or or what they're meaning about, whatever it is. So, like, we have to just expect that something new is going to happen and somehow this new technology medium will be used to help boost that. Great point. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Input Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And thank you, Simon, for taking the time to hop on the podcast today. It was a pleasure. Absolutely, Seamus. Anytime, man.